Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Today, the education journalist Jennifer Berkshire will report on the right's latest points of attack in their war on public schools, and then Peter Karatiev will analyze the political economy of his native Ukraine before, during, and after the war. Time was when the right's approach to public schools was standardized testing and breaking teachers' unions. They've now moved on to wanting to eliminate them entirely in favor of publicly subsidized Christian academies. Their strategy includes deviously ramping up fears of critical race theory and drag queen story hours. Here with more is the education journalist Jennifer Berkshire, making her fourth appearance in Behind the News. She's the co-author, along with Jack Schneider, of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School, published by the New Press, which she discussed on this show in April 2021. Berkshire and Schneider are also co-hosts of the education podcast Have You Heard?, Here she is to discuss a wacko new book by Peter Hegseth and David Goodwin, The Battle for the American Mind, and the latest obsession of Christopher Rufo, the man who elevated critical race theory into a right-wing talking point. Hegseth, by the way, is another one of those right-wing populists with two Ivy League degrees, Princeton and Harvard in his case. Same pair for Ted Cruz. And Josh Hawley, Stanford, a quasi-Ivy, and Yale, the real thing. Okay, here's Jennifer Berkshire. One of the weekend hosts of Fox News, Peter Hegseth, has a book out. Um, he's very alarmed about some material. What's what, what's Pete all, all up in arms about? It's just an incredible understatement to say he's alarmed about some material. What's absolutely crazy about this book, and he has a co-author, and you really get the feeling that this, the co-author, a guy named David Goodwin, that he really did all the work. But they are upset about the entire past hundred years. This isn't just the typical screed about schools turning out social justice warriors and filling our kids' heads with wokeness and turning them into trans activists. They are angry about basically the progressive era and the idea that at a certain point, schools stopped focusing on things like prayer and and molding Christians and instead adopted a vocational focus. I was just amazed when I started reading this book how far back their grudge goes. Basically, we have to undo everything. As critical as I am about the vocational focus of schools and this relentless drumbeat that the reason we have schools is to prepare kids for college and career, like they're not about that at all. The point of schools is to prepare kids to be Christian, basically. There's nothing to be done with public schools in their minds, nothing at all. Families have to exit the public schools and send their kids to classical Christian academies. What precisely uh, is a classical Christian academy? I don't suppose they're reading Homer, those kinds of classics. It's interesting. We did a podcast episode about this a few months ago because suddenly, you know, you hear the right bandying about terms like virtue. There are these classical charter schools that are a production of Hillsdale College, the very right-wing college in central Michigan. So it's interesting to look at that question, like, well, what what do they consider classical? Because, of course, you know, their definition of classical is very narrow. They want a canon that's very heavy on white men. Forget anything that the Arab world contributed, or if you just saw that amazing story about all the manuscripts that were rescued from Timbuktu and how deep the tradition of literacy goes back in Africa. That's nowhere to be found in the classical Christian curriculum. Instead, they have this weird combination of patriotism, free market worship, and then a very particular kind of Christianity, the kind that's very heavy on smiting. It's not the turn the other cheek side of Jesus. No, no, Jesus doesn't. He only seems to have one cheek because he does not turn it. They love the Old Testament. They love all that punitive stuff in the Old Testament. There's not so much about the redemptive side of Christianity. 
And this is a slightly different worldview than the very fundamentalist Christian. Um, but what's interesting is just how much overlap there is. If you read Rick Perlstein's book, Reagan Land, um, where you know he describes this weird partnership that emerges fairly early on between the libertarian economists and the, the moral majority. And it is amazing how long lasting that has been. And so you very much feel that in the, the Hillsdale curriculum that's being pushed now around the country. It isn't just their very particular vision of civil rights, which is basically that, you know, like Martin Luther King didn't want anybody to pay attention to skin color and that everything that happened after him has been an aberration. But really teaching kids to be critical of the New Deal. That was the period of history where America went off the rails and that you started seeing schools used as a place to re-engineer kids to get them to favor collective solutions. And so for people like you and I, you know, who have spent our entire adult lives just wishing we could convince somebody, anybody to pursue some kind of collective solution to our many problems. It comes as really just like a shocking surprise that that's what our schools have been focused on all along. We already won decades ago, right? The groundwork was laid in the 20s. And then the Frankfurt School set up shop. And that's when things really, really sped up. And now we're we're really seeing all of those decade after decade of those efforts coming to fruition. And for somebody like the president of Hillsdale College, Larry Arne, who's quite a controversial figure, the proof that our schools are failing is not in test scores. It's in the number of kids who vote for Bernie. You can measure the success of the kids in this collectivist enterprise in that the kids are turning socialist. It's funny that Frankfurt School is such a whipping boy for so many people. I was just reading some ultra leftists complaining that they were a CIA front. So they're like brought hippie dim and acid and free sex. And I also are a CIA front. It's all very confusing. It is very confusing. And I found myself feeling very confused as I read this book, because Pete Hegseth admits that he had never heard of the Frankfurt School. And so what you end up with is this sort of word salad. And since they can't really find any Marxists in our public education system, the Democrats have gone all in on education as really, you know, delivering for employers. So it's it's pretty hard to actually identify where is this Trojan horse for Marxism. They have to do all these switcheroos. Since they can't find examples of actual Marxism, they have to find all sorts of other things. And then inevitably, it always comes back to the teachers union, which is a deeply Marxist organization. <laughs> we know from the teachers unions long track track record of backing some of the worst incumbents that this is just such a ludicrous charge to make but they're making it and apparently it's finding a very willing audience because as i pointed out on twitter it's the top selling book in the country and then uh, we have um, that other right-wing ideological warrior who, it must be admitted, is very skilled at what he does. It's Christopher Rufo, uh, who has gotten us all obsessed with critical race theory and trans story hours and all this business. What's he up to now? Well, it's timely that you and I are talking today because he just announced yesterday that he is rolling out the next phase, and that would be his concerted effort to prove to the world that schools are very focused on gender ideology. Gender ideology is really sort of a dog whistle for fascists. I'll be curious to see what sorts of things he's going to turn up. So he was very explicit about his goals. He's going to release a report once a week for the next six weeks. And he plans on driving multiple news cycles. And he even you know, gave the metric that he hopes to achieve, that he hopes to reach 500 million impressions. What will be interesting to see is that with critical race theory, because schools are so focused on race, even in all this in the states where there are now these gag orders in place, schools are still on the hook for trying to close race based disparities in test scores between, say, black and white students. It's not that hard to find all sorts of examples where schools are focused on race. 15 minutes ago, that was really a shared priority of Democrats and Republicans alike. I think that the gender ideology stuff is going to be a tougher 
row to hoe, that it's going to be much more anecdote driven, where he will find a willing audience is in the sort of centrist pundit class. Even though gender ideology is this sort of very extreme, it's, you know, we're in the territory of Orban and, and Putin. Gender is really a central obsession of fascists and long has been. A lot of people dismiss it as somehow distracting or irrelevant, but it's, it's pretty crucial material. And I think they're right to understand how important it is. They're just on the wrong side of the question. It clearly touches a very deep chord. You know, the other thing that's really interesting about it is that Again and again, you'll see these sort of centrist pundit figures take the bait and then switch the specifics of the conversation back to trans athletes. The audience Rufo is appealing to is really the audience that doesn't think that trans people should exist. Um, And I'm thinking back to that terrific interview that you did with Jules Gill-Peterson about basically this concerted effort in state after state to just sort of drive trans people out of existence. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that going around. Um, But it's funny, like, you know, I hear a lot of people who seem, you know, more or less liberal on most political issues, who are deeply uncomfortable about the existence of trans people or the any attention paid to them, and will say things like, pronouns are going to lose the Democrats to midterms. Uh, so for somebody like Rufo to push this, you know, he's got certainly a hardcore audience of right-wing nuts who are going to embrace it. But then, I don't know, there seems to be a lot of collateral damage that's going to happen uh, among liberals. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, you know, of course, schools are going to be the focus, because that's where you really see, like, it's the next frontier of this sort of, you know, like our rights based system. We're now in the throes of an effort to roll back rights. I I think the other piece of it that's really interesting is that the I mentioned the obsessive focus on trans athletes where the culture war stuff is at its most explosive and most toxic is where they are able to figure out a way to speak both to the populist right audience and to a base of affluent parents who are fixated on getting their kids into the Ivy League. They see the trans athlete issue as not just an issue of fair and unfair, but, you know, they're counting on their child getting an athletic scholarship to an elite university. And, you know, I haven't really haven't seen anybody comment about that. Like, why would that issue resonate so strongly with people when it's so obscure? And when you look at the polling, you see that the polling on just the trans issue in general, it's essentially mixed. But then once you start talking about it in terms of trans athletes, you see that it swings. That's where you can really pick off Democrats and progressive Democrats, too. I don't want my daughter who's worked so hard for her spot to have to compete against a guy. And so I think it's a perfect example of how you mix this supercharged culture war, which now really flirts more and more openly with fascism and our high stakes meritocratic race. And you end up with, as you were saying, something that's going to produce just an enormous amount of collateral damage. I'm speaking with the education journalist, Jennifer Berkshire. And now we have Jonathan Chait, who is an exemplary idiot uh, in many ways. Uh, The classic, dumb, centrist Democrat, the guy who uh, cheered on Donald Trump's nomination in February 2016, wrote an incredibly stupid column because he thought uh, that, uh, that Trump would be the easiest to beat. Well, that didn't work out so well. But now Chait is very concerned about the schools and the culture war. And what's he saying in his breed of Democrat? What are they obsessed about? I am just shocked at how dumb he is. I have, I'm just going to put that out there. He is the official pundit for the education reform wing of the Democratic Party. Which, by the way, had been on the ropes, right? Is it making it, a comeback? Absolutely. Absolutely it had been on the ropes. It's not so much that it had been making a comeback. It's that the rest of the agenda has fallen into just, you know, sort of hopeless disarray. And so it really did seem in the early Biden term that more leftist pro redistributionist agenda, we were finally going to get somewhere with that. And we weren't going to rely entirely on the schools to solve all of our social and economic problems, right? Their only economic problem wasn't economic solution wasn't going to be just go to college and take on a whole bunch of debt. But then, you know, like little by little, that agenda falls apart. The child tax credit gone. 
Now it looks like debt relief may be on the, on the back burner again. And so for folks like Chait, who are all in on this vision that education is the way to solve these problems, and the expansion of charter schools in particular, they see this as a field has opened for them. That had been a bipartisan coalition for 30 years or so, and it really reached its frenzy during the Obama years. Well, now that bipartisan coalition has fallen apart for exactly the reasons we were discussing when we were talking about Pete Hedges' book. The Republicans have just gone completely unhinged when it comes to education. And so they're spending all of their time talking about trans strippers and being very explicit about the fact that their goal is to get rid of public education, period. And so if you're, you know, a Jonathan Chait or the wing of the party that he represents, you've lost your allies and they're making you look really bad. And I think that that's got a lot of these folks feeling really defensive because it's unclear, like, what product do they push? To go back into history a little bit, the Democrats became obsessed with education in the 90s as they were throwing over the New Deal agenda, purging any remnants of social democracy, redistribution, the DLC, Clinton uh, ideal. And I should point out that Hillary was among the leaders of the, uh, the war on teachers in Arkansas when Bill was governor. So this has, you know, a history in that kind of centrist democratic agenda. What happened to um, cause that to wane, or at least to, to, be, to, to be at least partly marginalized? Well, it ran out of steam, as you know, from reading Lily Geismer's book and talking to her. It's not necessarily that the solutions that they rolled out were terrible in and of themselves, but, you know, they, they oversold charter schools and there was no way for them to do all the things that they promised. And then, you know, the, the profit motive part of charter schooling, you could look back and see it coming, but that, you know, kind of ate everything. It required a kind of bipartisan gloss. And then as that coalition starts to splinter and the right gets more and more explicit about the fact that it wants to privatize schooling altogether, but then also begins to talk about all these issues that preceded that Clinton era coalition, right? So suddenly school prayer is back with a vengeance. Who would have seen that? We were very focused on things like test-based accountability. Arne Duncan didn't sound any different when he talked about schools as a, a moderate Republican governor. Well, now that's really over. It's not that the dream of charter schools has died, but the right now sees them as yet another opportunity to use the state to enforce a very particular vision of morality. So the next phase in the charter school period will be these conservative charter schools that are operated in conjunction with Hillsdale College, but also religious charter schools. And that's something that the recent Supreme Court decisions about weakening the church-state separation have really opened the door for. Why was Bill Clinton originally so excited about charter schools? And when Al Fromm was trying to sell him on the idea of charters as a way to court moderate suburban voters, what did they see happening? And it does not seem to have ever occurred to them that, well, actually, these could also be a really handy vehicle for a certain kind of right wing propaganda. I was amazed to learn uh, from your article in the forum that uh, despite all this anger at the teachers union for forcing COVID school closures, charter schools are more likely to be closed than public schools. Um, yes, that's absolutely. That's a remarkable fact. That just has not entered the popular consciousness in the least. No, and it's amazing to see op-eds like the one that Bloomberg um, has written. He's written a number of them because he's planning on donating something like three quarters of a billion dollars to expand charter schools. He made the case that this was necessary because of school closures. You know, the reason that charter schools were actually more likely to be closed than their, their district counterparts is because they were set up to be more accountable to the demands of families. And the families they served were the most concerned about COVID. It is really ironic that that it's just, you know, a sort of bad faith argument. And you're right, it, it did not, it didn't enter public consciousness at all. This agenda is not terribly popular. It doesn't poll well. 
parents with kids in their public schools say they like the public school system, although you get polls that also say people are concerned about the system in general. What about, first of all, that contrast between what people feel about the schools they know versus their feeling about the system? But then, you know, where is this alleged discontent that they're preying upon? Uh, where is this residing? I think this is just fascinating because you probably remember back last year when Steve Bannon announced that school boards were going to be the vehicle for the right taking back America. And if you actually look at the results of the these local elections, candidates that run on, you know, as anti-CRT candidates and anti-trans candidates have often fare really badly. I'm not just talking about in states like New York or Vermont. I'm talking about purple states like New Hampshire, and I'm talking about red areas in Georgia. And the reason is, you know, it gets to exactly that kind of disconnect that you were talking about. The culture war hysteria around schools is a national conversation. It's much harder for parents to believe that teachers in their local school are actually brainwashing their kids or they're there to promote gender ideology. What's so fascinating is that even people who went along with the first panic around CRT, you now see evidence that they're starting to think this is crazy. And so there was this incredible story a few weeks ago that ProPublica did about a DEI director that's a director of equity and inclusion for a school district in Georgia had hired and angry white parents caught wind of this and they basically drove her out of the school district. And then when she got a job at another school district, they drove her out of that one too. And I saw people sharing the story like crazy because it just confirms all of our very worst fevered imaginings about America right now. Right-wing zealots are just the worst people in the world. But the story didn't mention that a number of those parents also ran for school board and were defeated, handily, crushed. Some of it was this disconnect, but it's also that the culture war stuff is getting more and more and more extreme. So, you know, it started out with critical race theory, and then it moved to trans stuff and gender ideology. But now it's increasingly moved to just an open embrace of school privatization. So you try running for school board on a campaign that you want to defund the local public schools. That is a really unpopular platform. And we're seeing that in the elections. I'm so frustrated how that is really not reported in the mainstream press. And so I think people get the impression that somebody like Arufo is actually way more effective in a kind of local political ground game than he is. Democrats facing this stuff, which is not, as we were saying, not very popular, either seem not to want to talk about it or eager to embrace a, a softer, more polite version of it. Why this reaction? Why are they so reluctant to fight the culture war? A lot of it has to do with the fact that they lost the ability to articulate why we have public schools at all. It was interesting. There were two recent polls that came out, one commissioned by the American Federation of Teachers and one done by Democrats for Education Reform. And you could really see that both of them were casting about trying to figure out how to talk to voters about schools, the specifics of, of attitudes towards the culture war stuff are all over the place. On the one hand, stuff like book bans and educator gag orders are broadly unpopular across the political divide, which is really interesting when you think about how divided we are. But then there were other examples where, you know, if you frame it just right, like somebody like a DeSantis seems to have a real gift at doing talk about gender ideology before third grade. That's something where you see a broader group of parents saying we're not comfortable with this. Part of the issue is that the Democrats don't really understand the problem. And also, they really don't realize they're, they're totally disconnected from state races, which we already know about, right? That the after the Obama years, they, they just sort of like gave up all the state houses. And so that means that they're even more disconnected from local races. The advice that they're getting is all from people in blue state bubbles, that are just, you know, completely removed from how the stuff is playing out in, in red, red states and how, frankly, it looks like there's a real 
opportunity for Democrats as Republicans get more and more extreme on this stuff. But it's almost as if they don't themselves believe in the public sector in any serious way. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. I think that they're like, how often do we hear about somebody who's going to be our great hope, like uh, Gavin Newsom? He's going to be the one to take it to Ron DeSantis. Well, not only did California schools stay closed for a really long time, but he sends his kids to private school. It's almost like they've decided that they're this is just a cause that they're going to give up on. But if you go to places where Republicans have been much more out front about their goal being just getting rid of public schools, you'll find that Democrats are really waking up to the fact that they have to be much more aggressive about defending public education as an institution. There's a, a concerted effort underway on the right to make school choice, private school choice, private religious school choice, a litmus test issue among Republicans the way that abortion is. And so this means that the party increasingly is going to be basically running against its own rural constituents. They think they can use the hysteria around CRT and, you know, quote unquote, gender ideology to do this. I think it's going to be really messy and that that this is a place where Democrats would be really smart to spend a lot of time talking about rural schools. It's hard to imagine Dems being really smart, but one can always hope. That was the education journalist Jennifer Berkshire. She's the co-author, along with Jack Schneider, of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door from the New Press and co-host also with Schneider of the education podcast Have You Heard? Speaking of the Democrats and their relationship to intelligence, I've been stunned by the information emerging in recent weeks about their promotion of far-right candidates in Republican primaries because they think they'll be easier to beat. According to a tally assembled by Open Secrets, which tracks campaign contributions and spending, the party has spent $44 million to promote the looniest candidates in five states, California, Colorado, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Maryland. They include Doug Mastriano, candidate for governor of Pennsylvania, who wants to cut the education budget in half and give the remaining money to parents to spend on schools of their choice. Mastriano won the primary. Same in Maryland, where their anointed right-winger, Dan Cox, beat a more moderate opponent. The strategy not only seems suicidal, but a confession of the party's own emptiness. It's reminiscent of the column Jonathan Chait wrote for New York Magazine in February 2016, which I mentioned in my interview with Jennifer Berkshire, why liberals should support a Trump Republican nomination. Chait's three reasons. He would almost certainly lose. He didn't. Two, a Trump nomination might upend his party. It didn't. And three, a Trump presidency would probably wind up doing less harm to the country than a Marco Rubio or a Cruz presidency. It might even possibly do some good. Didn't turn out that way either. It's tempting to say they'll never learn, but it may be that they realize they have nothing positive to offer, so they're just going to embrace their status as the lesser evil. Vote for us because while we may suck, the other guys are out of their minds. Inspiring. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Dolphin Race from the new album Platform Capitalism by the DJ and musician Bergsonist. Originally from Morocco, she's now based in New York. I found the album on Bandcamp. Next, Ukraine. The country is suffering terribly from Russia's invasion, but its response has been profoundly unlike most other countries at war. Instead of a state-led mobilization of productive resources, the classic approach to supporting a military operation, Ukraine has continued deregulating, privatizing, and servicing its foreign debts, or pledging to at least. Why? To answer that question, and to provide a look at the country's underlying political economy, we're joined by Peter Karatiev, author of an article on the Jacobin Magazine website about that topic. 
Originally from Ukraine, Peter is currently sheltering in Australia. Peter Karatiev. It looks like Ukraine is broke, deeply in debt, not unusual for a wartime economy, but uh, they're not really um, doing any kind of state mobilization to uh, meet the demands of the war. Give us an overview of, of the Ukraine war economy. With the Ukraine war economy, it's hard to really describe it as a mobilizatory strategy so far. They're just they're cutting spending and uh, they're trying to use what funds exist on uh, supporting the military forces. In the first couple months of the war, there was also a push to cut down taxes in an attempt to encourage business uh, investments, which obviously had a really bad effect on tax revenues. Generally, it's oriented towards, yeah, like some idea that market investment needs to be encouraged through tax cuts and uh, continuing privatization. Going into the war, uh, Ukraine was uh, on a, a classic liberalization by the IMF book, liberalization strategy, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah, Ukraine's just been privatizing and liberalization in various spheres in terms of labor and banking sector and so on. It's continued throughout the war, essentially, with, with some small exceptions that in the past couple months seem to be going back to normal in terms of liberal normal. Yeah. In your Jacobin piece, you write about a 2014-2015 currency collapse, capital flight and impoverishment. Uh, could you talk about that period? What were they trying to do? Who was doing it? And uh, what were the results? Yeah, well, in that period, basically, the uh, the National Bank um, made the current, like, uh, floated the currency, essentially, and this resulted in a really, really big devaluation in currency from, it was around uh, 7 to 8 to the dollar in 2013, and then it went down to 30 to the dollar in uh, 2015, 2016, uh, and then it sort of stabilized the right around there. This resulted in the devaluation of lots of people's savings. And then there was also a parallel process, which I talk about in my article of the sort of bank fall, which is called in, uh, in Ukraine, when the uh, various ghost banks, according to the IMF, were terminated. There definitely were lots of corrupt schemes and so on. But of course, lots of people's deposits were destroyed by that. Lots of people suffered a lot from that. Now, if we go back a couple of decades, Ukrainian economy was deeply uh, integrated into the, the Soviet system. Did they ever really make the adjustment when the USSR fell apart? Were they ever able to establish some kind of independent economy or is it sleepwalking in zombie land? The problem is, is there were several, I guess, competing, I guess, economic visions of what post-Soviet Ukraine should be. There was this kind of vision of trying to use the Soviet industrial inheritance, trying to modernize it in some way, to make it uh, competitive in some way on world markets, which would require, I mean, some level of protectionism for a certain period of time at least. And uh, of course, continuing trade with uh, the uh, the old sort of Soviet industrial trade system. So with, with Russia, with Belarus, and also with African countries that also had been engaged with trade in, in trade with Soviet Ukraine. So that was one vision, especially with Eastern industrialists. And then there was another vision of integration to the West at any costs that was supported largely by people in the West of Ukraine, in the capital of Ukraine. There was sort of an alternation of different ruling groups, and they would um, try and implement their policies, and then the, sort of the, the other competing group would come into power. So it was difficult to have a consistent model, especially considering the really huge challenges that Ukraine faced. The problem was that they didn't really develop any new industries after the fall of the USSR. That doesn't make Ukraine very special. That's a common story. They weren't really able to develop new industries and they sort of stayed in these niches and there was very, very little investment, uh, real, real like productive modernization of, of the industries that remained. So there was just kind of a slow stagnation, especially from 2012. In, in, the, in the early 2000s, they, they coasted a lot on high um, iron prices because of, because of China. But then after 08, that really went away as, oil, uh, as iron prices, steel prices went back down. And, uh, and that was kind of the slow beginning of the end. Now, you mentioned uh, competing groups. From a distance, it seems like the Ukraine elite consists of competing groups of oligarchs looking for state favor. Um, is that a caricature? Is that uh, something like the real model there? Yeah, it is. But one thing I, I was actually, I, you told me you had this question you wanted to ask me. And one thing I wanted to talk about today is that with the war, we're seeing a kind of acceleration of this process that was beginning, but now it's really properly uh, entered a new phase. It's called the de-oligarchization of Ukraine's economy. For instance, Ukraine's richest man, Renat Akhmetov, he owned about 30% of Ukraine's GDP. It was really incredible. But basically, he announced that he sold his media empire to the government like last week. And there's lots of rumors that he's leaving Ukraine. And basically what you have now is that with the destruction of the country's industrial base because of the war, 
because of privatization as well and liberalization, there's no longer any real basis for these these oligarchs, you know, right? because they, their basis was control over the Soviet industrial inheritance. Now that inheritance is definitively being destroyed. So they're kind of moving away. And now, right now, you sort of have more of a, I guess, of a struggle within the state between different, more like purely political groups. And I guess the stakes here are no longer so much control over the industrial inheritance, but more so control of various Western aid. There are some sectors that are still important, the energy sector, dividing that up. The government is calling this the oligarchization and they're sort of kind of triumphant about it. But it's kind of hard to take it very positively because it's the corollary, I guess, of the total deindustrialization of the country. It's kind of hard to sustain an oligarchy if there's no underlying economic structure. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, this was always a big slogan of the IMF in the West, this whole idea of the oligarchization. The oligarchs were sort of identified with corruption and rent-seeking and so on. And the solution was said to be access to more competitive foreign capital and so on and so on. And obviously, of course, liberalization of various of industrial policy and less domestic state tenders and so on and so on. But you can kind of see as well how this push against oligarchs, it's also kind of a push against domestic industry as such in this way. So it's one of those slogans that's a bit, a bit hard to get, get behind in the way that it has been pushed over the past decade or so. So does Zelensky have any oligarchs in his corner? He was supposed to be the, you know, the guy who was fighting corruption and oligarchy. Um, is that true? And um, what's his status right now? Originally, he was identified as the guy that was backed by Kolomoisky, who's one of the, the richest guys in the country. That was, I mean, definitely true. Lots of in Zelensky and lots of people in his in his political command worked in various media structures of Kolomoisky. Yeah, I mean, you could make sort of various more or less compelling theories of how Zelensky's behavior is shaped by Kolomoisky's interests and so on. Uh, it's also a bit of a balancing act because ultimately Zelensky has to satisfy the West as well. And the West does not like Kolomoisky. America's been trying to extradite him to the U.S. to face charges forever. They've been trying to nationalize his bank. Well, they did nationalize his bank, uh, Privat Bank, uh, in Ukraine. And the IMF, this has been one of the big conditions of the IMF to nationalize this bank, to get it away from Kolomoisky, basically. He is, but right now, I think, more and more, the bigger concerns of Zelensky are to make sure that Western aid continues coming in. Not as much sort of the various conflicting oligarchical groups. And then within Zelensky's command, there's some like pretty serious divisions. But uh, I wouldn't say so much that's sort of into oligarchic strife. The oligarchs really like they're moving to different countries now. I mean, like they don't really have that much reason to stay anymore because they've lost all their assets. And uh, the ones that are remaining are just becoming, you know, either useless or being destroyed. I was just reading a piece in the New York Times early February, so a few weeks before the invasion, by the editor of the Kiev Independent, Olga Rudenko. And she used words like uh, mediocre, showman, shallow, vain, tolerant of corruption, in over his head to describe Zelensky. Now, the demands of war <laughs> brought forward some kind of moral renovation and rising skills at governance? Or is, you know, are there, were those things true then and are they still true now? Originally, the various like pro-Western media publications in Ukraine and the Atlanticist, I, guess, I mean, like Atlantic Council, for example, the really sort of famous publication that focuses on Eastern Europe from a NATO hawk perspective, they really hated Zelensky. They thought he was, yeah, he was like sort of representing the victory of the sort of the oligarchy. And it's, you know, under Zelensky, they're going to come to a reconciliation with Russia and so on and so on. You can find heaps of articles like that. Yeah. And all the way up to the beginning of the invasion. In fact, like it was right before February of this year that things were really heating up in terms of opposition to Zelensky from the West and from like the sort of the Western-backed, uh, I guess, nationalist opposition in Ukraine. So you had lots and lots of sort of really angry, angry stuff. The whole political sphere of nationalists that had lots of divisions, they were allying against Zelensky. In terms of like how justified that is, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, there's lots of corruption, I mean, within his, uh, within his command. A big recent scandal is he put in charge of the secret services of Ukraine, this guy, um, Bakanov, I think uh, his name was. This guy was just Zelensky's old time, I guess, friend. That's how they put it. Oh, this is the guy who got fired the other day, right? It's the guy who got fired. Yeah, yeah. He was officially fired. He had no experience in the secret services. He never actually worked there. And various sort of like uh, secret service agents, very displeased with this guy. They say it's just like total corruption schemes. This Bakanov guy has no interest in improving the secret services and how they work or, or, or whatnot. There's lots of reports like that about how there's plenty of people in Zelensky's team who are kind of professional grifters. 
they're not really businessmen as such. They just sort of leech around from different uh, political commands, which isn't unique to Zelensky at all. It's kind of hard to call them, I guess, incredibly productive. I'm speaking with the political economist Peter Karatiev. Often in wartime, arms procurement uh, generates some kind of domestic economic boom, but almost all the arms that uh, Ukraine is, uh, is using have to be imported, right? So there's not much a way of uh, domestic economic stimulus coming out of the war effort. And meanwhile, you know, the country is being savaged, being uh, destroyed, uh, people being killed left and right. What's that result of that? Uh, if, if all these arms are imported, what's the effect on, on, on domestic life in Ukraine? I can't speak about how it's affecting life there at the moment. I haven't lived there since March, but over the past years, this has definitely affected life in terms of reducing employment and reducing wages. And in the war, it's kind of wages have decreased even further, employment's decreased even further. I can give a sort of an anecdote. One of my family members in Ukraine, she works in the in a port in one of the big southern Ukrainian cities on the Black Sea. This port was hit. I mean, all the different ports, transportation sort of sectors really hit really hard by the industrialization. Before 2014, she was earning around $800 a month, uh, $800 to $1,000, which was quite good back then. And, and then after 2014, she, and, and in like, for instance, 2020, she was earning almost $250, $300 a month for the same job because just there was just less and less industry in the country and less goods to, be, to go to the port and so on. Uh, and then because of the war now, she's earning 50 to to $100 a month. What is the role of the IMF and the other Western economic supervisors in running Ukraine's economy over the last decade or so? Generally, in terms of, of liberalizing it, making it more open for foreign investors and so on, removing any sort of industrial policy, <laughs> removing all industrial policy, really. Because when you listen to the Ukrainian sort of economic ministers, even the word industry doesn't really appear very much, basically never there were some people in Zelensky's command who started talking about industrial policy and protectionism a bit more. They got various sort of attacks for that. But, uh, but generally, there's just very little talk of industry whatsoever. And the IMF sort of, yeah, I mean, obviously facilitates this. There's actually a good anecdote that I could sort of say, I mean, like a bit of a news event from the past couple of days. Ukraine, as I write about in my article, they've been paying all of the debt, all of the state debt throughout the war. It's been at, at like 99.9% of all debt has been repaid. That was planned for this period. And the Ukrainian state has sort of reiterated multiple times. They're not going to default. They're going to pay back the foreign debt in full. And then basically at the end of last week, uh, I think somewhere in the middle of last week, uh, Naftogaz, which is the um, Ukrainian state energy company, public-private, they basically appealed to their, uh, the, the holders of their financial assets to, um, to basically allow them not to pay for two years. Semi-default, basically. The creditors said no. And then the uh, IMF came out with a statement a couple of days after that, reiterating the Ukrainian state will pay back its, its debt. And it's, it's, according to the IMF, the Ukrainian state is uh, planning to repay its state debt. And there's no, there's no sign of default. You have this. There's a, a very big commitment to fulfilling the demands of creditors, even in a war situation. And yeah, and then, then sort of things like at the end of June, the Ukrainian government passed a law to... Um, accelerate prioritization of state state-owned enterprises which has been one of the demands the IMF for the past forever basically even in wartime this kind of thing continues uh, there's been big labor liberalization another big one of the uh, IMF demands the various anti-corruption agencies which I write about in my article that is also a really big demand of the IMF if you look at any of really the, the big the big IMF demands they've always had throughout this war they've like kind of um, most maximal versions of them have been adopted I appreciate the uh, the dedication of paying the debts, but uh, you know the domestic currency is in very wobbly shape, and uh, Ukraine is not earning very much foreign currency at this point. So, um, how can they possibly pay off the debts, regardless of their intentions? I'm not sure what the long term strategy is here. I honestly think that the West, in general, doesn't really know either what its plan is. There's lots of articles about this in the sort of the military sense, but if you combine the mil the lack of a clear military plan with the situation, with the lack of a real, I think, economic plan. And if you don't have a clear military plan, it's hard to know the sort of the, the context of the economic solution. So it, it, it all ends up being very confusing. And I, I, yeah, I really can't say that they have much. 
the West just hasn't really changed what it wants from Ukraine. And Ukraine wants to please the West to get more funds. So Ukraine just does what it knows the West wants. And you have this sort of situation, I suppose. The contrast with what the U.S. did during World War II, when it took over domestic industry for the war effort, there was a large domestic industrial sector to take over in the first place. But then the government commandeered much of the productive resources of the country. This is exactly the opposite of what Ukraine has been doing. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, and Ukraine does have it, it still had there is still a quite large uh, industrial sector in Ukraine. There still are really serious Soviet era military industrial complexes that still exist. I mean, they've been sort of really limping along the past couple of years, but you know, they do exist. There are figures in the Ukrainian government that have been calling for nationalizations, but it just hasn't happened. The only case of a semi-nationalization is of the energy industry, but that's a fairly strange sort of case where it, it, it's better. It's probably better than nothing, but uh, it's it's still not a you know military nationalization, which is definitely what we expect in this kind of situation. Are there any domestic interests that benefit from following the IMF prescriptions? There are. So I mean, you can really talk about. There's a segment of agricultural interests that uh, definitely benefit from this situation. More so like foreign industrial various conglomerates. The really famous one, Dragon Capital, that was uh, the biggest, I think, uh, agri-holding in Ukraine. They benefit from having uh, very low export taxes. And there's lots of also tax benefits for different ag- uh, agricultural exporters that sort of uh, fairly corrupt if you have a look at the way those laws are passed. In terms of industrial interests, I wouldn't really say that the industrial interests have benefited so much. If you look at, for instance, the, uh, the wealth of sort of the richest Ukrainians, it's actually like declined quite significantly since 2014. Their assets have been destroyed a lot of the time, or they've just sort of, they've lost their old markets in, in Russia and so on. The main group that I would say benefits is what you can generally call, I suppose, civil society or something like this. Various political activists, uh, as they call themselves, that receive various grant money from Western structures, the NGO complex, I guess you can say. IT professionals, of course. I mean, it's hard to say how much they've benefited. I think they would be, they would be the same, really, in any situation, honestly, because, I mean, they, they work for foreign companies. So I, I don't think it matters that much whether they have an IMF government or non-IMF government. They just sort of politically like the whole sort of Western orientation because, I mean, well, they work with Western companies and that's sort of... I've, had lots of experience working with different IT professionals in Ukraine. They have a very sort of self-assured, I guess, political orientation towards towards the West. The actual group of people who economically benefit is kind of hard to define. You have the civil society, grant sector, and so on. In terms of actual economic agents, like productive agents, it's 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 really hard. Because I mean, for instance, the um, the EU association agreement. This was really bad for Ukrainian industry, and even like. It didn't really open up access to the EU market that much. They've been they've been negotiating for they were negotiating for you know for seven years uh, for years and years for a renegotiation of this agreement that would allow Ukrainian industrialists to have actual open access to Ukraine to the EU market and it just never went through. Even agricultural exporters to the EU, Ukrainian ones, they had quotas and they were very low quotas. Like they would always go over the quotas and then they would have to pay ordinary tariffs, uh, which were you know very very high for um, entering the EU market. There are definitely some producers that have benefited, but I definitely wouldn't say the majority of an industry has benefited. It's probably more so like certain producers, maybe with ties to the government and with, uh, with differences. But yeah, overall, I'd say it's the sort of civil society grant sector that's really benefited. And you mentioned um, that British advisors are urging labor market liberalization, which is in the interest of Britain in that uh, it provides a flow of uh, impoverished uh, emigre Ukrainian laborers to go work in Britain, right? Does that, uh, that, that sounds like a very cynical strategy. Is that what's going on? Yeah, I mean, this was, this was uncovered uh, last year, I believe, the British equivalent of the State Department. They were funding the sort of various seminars for in Ukraine for Ukrainian politicians and Ukrainian different business figures and so on, media figures for how to best market this uh, labor liberalization, which was which was passed by the way yesterday. I talk about it in my article, and uh, it was like definitively passed yesterday. Uh, though actually, the past couple of days there have been three labor liberalization laws that were passed. Britain is interested in this. The Britain's dependence on Ukrainian migrant laborers is really, really very high. I mean, right now they're having lots of problems actually in Britain because the Ukrainian men can't come to work in Britain because they can't leave Ukraine because of the military 
mobilization. And uh, yeah, before the war, 67%, I think it was, of uh, new migrant visas were given to Ukrainians in 2021. So, uh, and in different sectors, there's a really, really huge dependence on, on Ukrainian laborers. And um, it's, it's the same also in, in Poland. A huge amount of Ukrainians work in Poland, especially in the agricultural sector, picking strawberries and so on, and also in different smaller like factories and, and et cetera. Poland's also been a really big supporter of Ukraine's liberalization. There's two aspects where you like you, sh- you shut down the factories and people have to leave to find work in a different country. And then also you encourage this different sort of worsening of labor conditions, which then means that they're, they're willing to work for less in your country. So finally, what would a post-war scenario look like? You're going to have a country that's depopulated, deindustrialized, seriously damaged physically, lots of wounded people and broke. Um, this doesn't seem like uh, Ukraine is going to be a prime candidate for EU membership anytime soon. No, no, yeah, no, it doesn't. Uh, but this is still the sort of big, I guess, national idea that the, I mean, it's, it's the only real national idea that they sort of have, that they're able to use right now, the Ukrainian elite. They still keep on talking about this in the EU recession. And uh, they're very serious about it in terms of, yeah, I mean, if they don't have this, it's very unclear how they're going to be able to justify anything, really. Post-war Ukraine will look like pre-war Ukraine, but with all of the problems multiplied by like a, a factor of 10 or something. The post-war plans that they've announced those at Lugano or whatever in this uh, Swiss city uh, by the Ukrainian government, I think this was in, yeah, in, in June, end of June. Yeah, it's all really oriented around, it's huge numbers, it's like $720 billion that they're planning to get in terms of, what well, they're planning to spend in terms of reconstruction. And $300 billion of that's meant to come from the EU as grants. That seems very unlikely to me. Am I- incredibly, incredibly unlikely, yeah. Because I mean, even recently, there've been all there's been lots of news stories about the EU being unwilling and blocking different sort of much smaller aid to Ukraine at the order of like uh, 9.5 billion dollars. Germany's been blocking it apparently, and Ukraine. The Ukrainian governments had, had talked about this actually, but they, so it's not like really a myth. I mean, Bloomberg's talked about this, the Ukrainian government's talked about this. But anyway, and they also plan to get 300 billion dollars from private investors. So you still have this whole kind of paradigm where private investors really want to come and invest in the country. The plan also talks about labor liberalization, you know, there'll be flexibilization of labor and it'll just be fantastic. And uh, Otherwise, the visions of post-war Ukraine, you know, there's lots of references to, you know, like Iron Dome, IT, various Ukrainian government figures have made various sort of like, I guess, inspiring tweets about how Ukraine will be the, the freest country with the strongest IT sector and so on and so on with a strong military. So, I mean, it, it looks like before the war, but with you just cranked up the dial, I guess. That was Peter Karatiev. You can find this article on Ukraine's war economy on the Jacobin website. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Bam Bam by the electronic dance music trio Major Laser, featuring French Montana and Beam in a remix by Logic 1000, the stage name of Samantha Poulter, the Sydney-born Berlin-based DJ, often described as reclusive. Till next week, bye.